Chapter 7, Getting Clients. Hey there, I'm Eric Olson. And I'm Kevin Daisy. Join us on our journey to building a $100 million company. Hey, what's happening? This is Eric J. Olson. In January of 2021, I published a book named Million Dollar Journey. I had the audio for that. It's on audible.com, but I'm going to share it with you right here on this podcast. So this is a chapter from the book. Some of these episodes are going to be long. Some will be short, but I'm going to read the whole thing to you. One chapter at a time. Here you go. After hearing it, let me know what you think on Instagram. I hang out there at eric.j.olson. That's E-R-I-K.j.olson. And without further ado, here's a chapter from Million Dollar Journey. One of the most frequently asked questions I get is, how do I get clients? Although most entrepreneurs want one surefire way, the reality is it takes several different techniques for you to get and keep your prospect's attention. Here are several techniques I've used successfully for years. Attending events. There are several reasons to attend an event, either in person or online. The first is to learn. The second is to network. Both are important reasons to attend an event, but the most important for you at this point in your entrepreneurial journey is to network. Although you already have a network, you'll always want to grow it. When you think of your network, don't just consider your first-degree connections, those you know directly. Also consider your second-degree connections, people you don't know yet, but someone in your network knows. Why are second-degree connections important? Every person you know, in turn, knows several hundred or even several thousands of people. Your first-degree connections can introduce or refer you to their connections. The more people you meet, the bigger your overall network becomes. Make it a habit, especially early on in your journey, to continuously find new people to network with. If someone invites you to a networking event, make every effort to go. Networking events are great when you have a sponsor, someone who has invited you and can introduce you to other attendees. Having a sponsor is a great opportunity that works to your advantage. If you're lacking these kinds of warm networking opportunities, then find other networking events to attend. Check out meetup.com and eventbrite.com for events in your area that seem interesting and could have prospects in attendance. It can be awkward to attend a networking event where you don't know anyone, but it's vital that you overcome your angst. What's the best way to network at one of these mingling events? Simply walk up to someone, look them in the eye, stick out your hand or offer a fist bump or elbow bump and say, hi, my name is. Resist asking them, what do you do? It's an awkward question that everyone else asks and is typically a dead end to the conversation. Instead, prepare a few topics that you can use as icebreakers. Ask them if they attend these meetings often, talk about a current event, or talk about the presentation you're about to see. Just defer asking them, what do you do for as long as possible? When you're talking to people, don't ask them for work. At some point, the conversation will naturally turn towards what you do. Simply tell them what you do, but don't ask them if they need your offering. As an example, I usually say something simple like this. I run a digital marketing agency. If it so happens they need what you do, then they will let you know. If they don't, then they won't, and that's okay too. Your goal at this point is simply to make an acquaintance and to add someone to your network. Your goal is not to sell them. Not yet anyways. When you go back to the same networking event another time, then hopefully you'll see a familiar face or two. Each time you go back, you'll get more comfortable because you'll know more people, 
and you will know them better than before. It will get less awkward, and eventually they'll all know you and what you do. When an opportunity arises, when someone they know needs your offering, they'll naturally come to you. The more you stay in front of them, the more top of mind you'll be when opportunities pop up. The art of following up. At each networking event you attend, try to exchange business cards with each person you talk to. Even if you told them your name and your company name, they may quickly forget. A business card helps them to remember. It also gives them your contact information so they can reach out if they or someone they know needs your offering one day. It's too easy and common for people to take the business cards they get from networking meetings and simply put them on a shelf to never be looked at again. If you do this, then what was the point of getting the business card in the first place? Instead, you want to put them to use. Here's what I do with each business card I receive. First, I add them into my contacts app. That way, I can call on them or text them easily. I make a note in their contact record of when and where I met them so that later on, my notes will jog my memory. Second, I email or text them the next day saying that it was great to meet them. If you can recall a tidbit about them or your conversation, then include that in your message. Third, I invite them to join my email list. If you do this, don't add them directly to your list. That will annoy them because they didn't ask to be spammed. Instead, tell them about your newsletter and why you think it's relevant to them and that they'll get an email from MailChimp or whatever system you use in a minute about joining. If they want to join, they can. If they don't want to join, they can do nothing and stay off the list. And fourth, if I think they could become a client one day, then I'll make a task for myself to reach out again in a week or two. If I'm going to another networking event, then I'll ask if they're going to. If we're having our own event, then I'll invite them to attend. Even if they don't come, just being invited is flattering. It's also simply an excuse to get back in front of them. The important thing is not to do what many people do. Send a connection request on LinkedIn and then never contact them again. Use your collected business cards to your advantage by creating a process for adding them to your contacts and following up with them. Hosting your own events. In addition to showing up to someone else's networking event, you can host your own. The great thing about hosting your own events is that all of the goodwill of the event is channeled to you and your company. Most people think that if they host an event, it'll cost an arm and a leg. It doesn't have to. You can get away with hosting events that aren't that expensive, are relatively easy to put together, and strategically collect people you want to get in front of. The first event I held was a small happy hour. I invited eight people to join me, a mix of current clients, business acquaintances, and two prospects. We met at a local restaurant known for its wine. I bought a round of appetizers and the first round of drinks. After that, drinks were on the person who ordered them. That was a good way to cap the cost, which was, including the tip, $173. The result? Although I didn't walk away with any signed contracts, it led to relationships that I still tap into to this day. I can call on any of the attendees, ask if they know someone I'm interested in meeting, and if they do, they'll make an introduction. They'll even proactively send the leads my way. A one-time expense of $173 is an inexpensive way to establish a tight network of referral partners. But you can't stop at just one of these events. The next event I hosted was at my first office. I had moved into that office about six months earlier and a grand opening was overdue. I wanted to keep costs down, so I skipped the caterer and did it myself. We ordered and picked up trays of shrimp, cheeses, fruit, 
and other finger food that could be put on the conference table without much preparation or fuss during the event. An assortment of beer and wine topped off the offering. I sent out invitations which included the phrase, we've invited mostly business owners and managers of companies we work with. I included this sentence so that those invited would recognize the valuable network of attendees and realize it would be worth their time. I wasn't just inviting people to some random event. I was inviting them to mingle with my clients. The implication was that my clients could become their clients. That was something of value. I also included the phrase, feel free to bring someone else who you think would be a good fit for us to work with. This turned out to be a $20,000 sentence. The wording in that last sentence was important. I didn't want them to bring a coworker, friend, or a date. What I wanted and what I requested was to bring someone who could possibly become one of my clients. One person I invited ended up inviting one of her clients to join her. She even brought him to my office early so we could talk before the event. Turned out he had a business idea which required a new website, which was exactly the type of work we did. He didn't even stay for the event because he had a conflict, but he returned a couple of days later to continue the conversation. That quickly led to a signed contract for $20,000 of new work. The event cost me about $1,000. In addition to the tangible return on investment of $20,000 in new work, we created a ton of goodwill, strengthened connections with other business owners in the community, and generated a few additional leads. The event was a winner. Things were working out so well with event hosting that I started to take it up a notch. A month later, I co-hosted an event at our local minor league baseball field. Splitting a suite three ways with two other business owners, we each invited five guests to join us for opening night of the season. Each guest was a business owner. It was a great room to be in, and it was an excellent event to host, but nothing materialized out of it. It felt a bit too swanky for me. I decided to go big on the next one. I rented a sailboat for my next happy hour. Problem was, I was having a difficult time coming up with names of prospects to invite, so most of the attendees ended up being business people I already knew. I spent about $3,000 on the event, which included an open bar. It was cool, but no new leads came out of it. With the lackluster results of the last two events I threw, I cut back on events. Instead of hosting lavish events, I went back to what worked, inexpensive happy hours in my office. That's where I got the biggest bang for my buck. I also scaled back on the frequency, hosting happy hours at my office once every six months or so. That felt like the right frequency and provided a good enough return on investment to justify the events and keep new prospects coming in the door. When throwing your own networking events, Think of the business rationale for spending the time and money on them. To keep the cost down, consider holding your events at your office or at a place that will be inexpensive for you. The goal is to provide value to your guests, to meet prospects, and to generate leads, not to throw a cool party. Email newsletters. Even if you just have a small list of subscribers to start, Email newsletters are a great way to stay in front of prospects, to present you and your company as an expert in the field, and to provide valuable content. The idea is that someone can sign up for your newsletter and you'll send them helpful tidbits of news and information. Newsletters should be related to the offering your company provides and will allow you to go deeper into a subject than you can on social media. People will subscribe if they are interested in what you have to say and if they perceive that you offer value without a hard sales pitch. Newsletters are ideal for people who had previously experienced interest in working with you, but either weren't ready to hire you at the time or simply went cold for some reason. They're also good for warming up new prospects who may be interested in working with you soon. 
We've experimented with sending out newsletters at different frequencies. At first, we sent them out at random times, essentially whenever we got around to it. That's a mistake. When you don't give yourself a firm timeline, then that thing you know you should do will always get pushed off. If you're going to send a newsletter, then commit to a regular schedule. How often should you send your email newsletter? Some successful email marketers send emails daily. I've never done that because it sounds like a full-time job creating all that content day in and day out. It's also a full-time job as a recipient. When I've been on the receiving end of a daily email, I'll read them for a few days, but inevitably unsubscribe in about a week. Daily emails just aren't for me and probably won't be for you either unless your plan is to directly generate money from your newsletter. The most common frequency that businesses send newsletters after whenever they get around to it is monthly. Monthly is good for most businesses most of the time. It's a nice balance between the work it takes to produce the newsletter and the value it provides. It's not too much on anyone, and sending monthly is a good frequency to remind people that you exist. But sending monthly really isn't frequent enough. A month is a long time for your prospects and customers to have not heard from you. So we've settled on every two weeks, which seems like a good balance between the work it takes to create a newsletter and the value to our recipients. Here's the important point about frequency. Pick a frequency and stick to it. Fully commit to sending your newsletters when you say you'll send them. If you're not sure of the frequency you want for your newsletter, then start with monthly. It's a good compromise. But what will you say in your newsletters? The golden rule in newsletters is to provide valuable information. For us at Array Digital, each newsletter is packed with the latest information on digital marketing, with links to our videos, podcast episodes, and articles. Those articles that are on your website, include an abstract in your newsletter and link to the full article. Encourage people to click through to your site to read more. Your social media posts? Find the one that got the most engagement since you sent your last newsletter and feature it as an in case you missed it segment. If you shoot video, include an image and link it to the full video. If you host your own events, talk about them in your newsletter. You could include a summary of the last event you held to show subscribers what they missed, and you can tease the next event you'll be holding. If you find yourself without the time, resources, or energy to create content, then you can forward industry news instead. Select two or three news articles that are pertinent to the work you do and compile them into your newsletter. Last but not least, since you're giving so much valuable information in your newsletter, don't be afraid to include an ask. Your call to action can be for subscribers to attend one of your events, to forward the newsletter to a friend, or to call you if they need your services. By now, you should have an idea of when to send your newsletter as well as what to say in it. But how do you get subscribers? We found that asking people to subscribe to our newsletter on our website didn't result in a lot of signups. Even explaining the value in great detail resulted in few signups. A different approach is to not ask them to join a newsletter, but instead give them something of value immediately. We've done this by providing a free ebook that we wrote. Once they provide their email address, they can download the ebook. They're told they'll be subscribed to our newsletter, which contains more up to date information than could be included in the ebook when it was written. When doing this, be clear that the person is not only getting the ebook, they are also signing up for your list. This technique has led to a tremendous amount of growth in our newsletter compared to before. Instead of waiting for your next newsletter before reaching out to your new subscribers, send them a series of initial emails. These initial emails are referred to as a drip campaign. 
Your first email in this drip campaign can include a link to your ebook or whatever you're offering at the time. One problem with email newsletters is that sometimes they get flagged as spam by email providers. To ensure this doesn't happen to ours, we send the link again in a second email and ask the person to email us back to confirm they got the ebook we promised them. Doing so will signal to their email provider that they're interested in what we have to say and their email provider is more likely to deliver our emails into their inbox in the future. Social media. Most entrepreneurs know they need a presence on social media. Social media is where people hang out these days, and you need to be there too. It's a weird world out there to the uninitiated. It can be a confusing place no matter what, but especially when promoting your company. But since people spend so much time these days on social media, it's important to have a solid presence there. When people are online, they're likely on social media, and you need to be there too. Being on social media is important enough that many companies constantly promote their profiles and pages at every opportunity. In print ads, on the sides of their vehicles, they even put social media icons at the top of their homepage trying to entice people to follow us. That's a big mistake. Through advertising, marketing, and a whole lot of hustle, you've worked hard to get people to come to your website. The last thing you want to do after finally getting someone there is to immediately trigger their social media FOMO, fear of missing out, by reminding them to get off of your website and go see what's happening in the last five minutes since they were on their social media. When they see those icons, they're likely to click over. Yes, they'll end up on your profile or page, and there's a chance that they'll follow you, but more likely than not, social media will do its job and provide a never-ending feed of posts from their friends, family, and others they follow. Although you hoped they'd follow you, they'll get stuck in the vortex of social media consumption. Should you put social media icons on your website? Yes but at least don't remind them about social media as soon as they land on your site. Instead, put the links at the bottom of your website in the footer. If someone gets through your entire webpage and still longs to know more about you on social media, then you want to make it easy for them to find you there. As a goal, instead of sending people from your website to social media, you want to send them from social media to your website. Your website is the place you want all your prospects to visit because that is a place you control and a place where you can properly describe your offering in a way that can entice them to contact you. When creating company content on social media, provide something of value to potential customers. Different social media platforms have different purposes. Some platforms focus on keeping up with your friends. Others focus on keeping up with business contacts. Each is different, and it'll be up to you to figure out which platforms you support. Some gurus will tell you to be omnipresent, a fancy word for saying that you should be everywhere. The problem is that it'll take you hours of your time every day to be everywhere. You will need to either devote the vast majority of your time to supporting social media or you'll need to hire someone to do it for you. It can be worth it, but it's a big investment in time and money and may not have the immediate return on investment that gurus claim. Before you start creating a presence on all the platforms and then abandoning them due to lack of time and resources, instead, think about what you want to say and who you want to say it to. Like writing a newsletter on a regular basis, Posting on social media can become a chore. Since it's work to figure out what to post, how to say it, and when to say it, I suggest that you don't put too much effort into social media when you're just starting your company. Yes, I know that's an odd recommendation from a digital marketer like myself, but I'm also a business owner 
getting work that pays is more important than likes when your business is young. Likes, comments, and social media are cool and may make you feel good, but they don't pay the bills. It takes an awful lot of work on social media to generate leads. So for now, do yourself a favor and mostly skip social media and focus on what really counts, sourcing new customers from your network and doing awesome work. But when you're ready, come back to social media with a vengeance. When it's time for you to start playing the social media game, you'll need to make a few decisions. First, which social media platforms will you support? If you are a B2B company, meaning your business sells to other businesses, then concentrate on social media platforms built for business relationships. As of the time of this writing, LinkedIn is the dominant social media for business relationships. If you're a B2C company, meaning your business sells to individual consumers, then you'll want to support social media platforms where people aren't there for business. They're there for pleasure. Right now, Facebook and Instagram are where it's at. But there are new challengers on a monthly basis. For starters, pick just one social media platform and support it fully. When you get more advanced, once your company is humming, you will want to support more social media platforms. Once you've selected the social media platform that's most important to you, what are you going to do on it? After adding your obligatory profile pictures and basic data, it'll be time to publish a few posts. I recommend you pick a posting schedule that you can commit to. Social media gurus often recommend posting multiple times a day. Posts, stories, videos, going live. If you want to be on social media almost nonstop, then social media has the ability to support that. But let's face facts. You're not ready for all that yet. The reality is that you're just now standing up your business and you have too much on your plate already. You cannot afford to spend too much of your finite time on social media. You need to stay focused on getting work and delivering for your clients. Social media is a perk. You want to be there, but you can only do so much. Do it, but don't overdo it. I recommend you post at least three times a week. If you're writing an email newsletter, then you can and should recycle a lot of that content into your social media posts. If you've written an article for your website, then you can break down that article into multiple individual posts. Perhaps copy a sentence or two from the article and paste that in your social media post. Include an applicable image. People love to see other people on social media. Occasionally include a link back to the full article on your website. But don't always include a link because social media algorithms don't favor posts that try to get people to leave their platform. If you're sharing industry news in your newsletter, then you can do the same on social media. Just be sure to share content that your prospects will find interesting. Social media, like all other company messaging, should target your ideal clients only, even to the detriment of others like your friends and family. Remember, you're after clients not to entertain your friends and family who very likely will never buy from you. Most importantly, what you post should be pertinent to your business. These posts should remind people of what you do and why that's important to them. When someone comments on your post, reply to them. In your spare time, which I know feels less abundant with every passing day, look at some of your followers' posts and drop a comment on them. Comments are powerful ways to interact. Comments show that you're interested in the topic at hand, which should be relevant to your business and exposes you to your followers' audience. 
Comments are a much better option than simply liking a post. With a comment, you are contributing to an ongoing conversation and engaging with a person. Comments take more time to provide than a like, get you more exposure than a like, and are rewarded much more by social media algorithms. Even better, do both and like and comment on posts. When posting, show your personality and have fun. Remember, people are on social media to escape the pressures of life. So have fun. All that said, you're on social media because you want something out of social media for your business. In the end, you need to extract some value. Otherwise, how could it be good for your business? Although you want to extract some value from your social media activity, you should be cautious to not publish too many salesy posts. Nothing is more annoying than following a company or a person who runs a company and they're always selling something on social media. People aren't there to be sold to, but they are open to the occasional sales pitch if done correctly. Sell infrequently and only after giving tips, tricks, and generally adding value to the platform. As a basic rule, never sell in more than one out of every 10 posts. One more thing about social media. There's real power in direct messages, also known as DMs. Whenever I get a new connection, I always send them a DM basically saying what I would say in the real world. Something like, hi, my name is Eric. I run a marketing agency. How are you? It's simple, but highly effective. Few people do this on social media. When most people get a new connection, they never interact with that person. That's a mistake. Take a few seconds to DM each new connection and say hi, and you'll set yourself miles apart from what your lazy competitors are doing, or more accurately, what they're not doing. Referrals. As you continue to market yourself and more people who you know start to realize the type of work that you do, they will come across opportunities that may be a fit for you. Referrals are a great source of work because a potential client has been recommended to you by someone they trust. Because they trust the person who referred them to you, they immediately place a level of trust in you before they ever contact you. I've found that a high percentage of referrals to me, assuming they are a good fit, become clients. The best kinds of new projects and clients come from referrals and you want as many of those as possible. Since referrals are such a great source of new work, it's in your best interest to continually ask people you know for referrals. This serves a few purposes. For starters, by asking them if they know anyone who may be a fit for your work, you are indirectly asking them for their business. You're not coming right out and saying it, but since you're asking for anyone who you could work with, they could very likely think of themselves. This is a safe way to ask someone for their business without being so blunt and awkward about it. It's also an opportunity for you to remind your network about what you do. Often your request for a referral will lead someone who already knows you to ask for clarification on exactly what you do. It happens to me all the time. When someone asks for clarification, be sure to summarize what you do in a simple manner. Now is not the time to start geeking out and throwing technobabble jargon at them. Remember, you need to communicate simply because they have to carry that message forward onto others. All too often when I meet new entrepreneurs and ask them what they do, they answer, but I'm no closer to understanding what they actually do. Be clear and simple in your answer. Referral fees. Some people will only refer work to you if they get a referral fee. This is a common request when you are a one-person show. The concept is that someone will introduce a connection to you, and if you land the work, you will pay the referring person a fee. After all, 
you wouldn't have to work unless your friend made the introduction, right? The fee could be a one-time fee or could be a percentage of the revenue you generate as a result of the introduction. I've had people ask me for referral fees as high as 20%. About a year into my business, an acquaintance, someone who owned a slightly similar business to mine, had a client who needed more specialized work than he could provide. He brought the opportunity to me and requested a 10% fee of the project revenue. At the time, I was worried about not having enough work and was thankful to get the lead. So I agreed to the terms. He introduced me to his client and I took it from there. I had several meetings with the client, developed the scope of work, proposed a solution, negotiated the terms, and started working. As I got paid, I'd pay my friend who referred me his 10%. The project continued on for months, almost a year, and I continued to make his referral payments. But as time marched on, I started to regret the deal. Here I was busting my butt day in and day out, and he wasn't doing a thing on the project. I was 100% responsible for the work. I had to do the work, deliver the work, deal with the client, and nag the client for payment. My referral partner didn't have any responsibility after making the introduction. It just didn't seem fair that I continued to pay him when I was the one with all the ongoing responsibility, work, and liability. Even though I wasn't thrilled about it, I continued with the deal, but it left a bad taste in my mouth. Another time, I was approached by another business owner for another referral. They knew someone who they thought may need my assistance. I again agreed to a 10% referral fee for the lead. But this time, the referral partner didn't exactly hand me the project on a silver platter. Instead, he forwarded me an email where the potential prospect had mentioned possibly having a need. When I reached out to the person to see if they wanted to work with me, it was extremely awkward. He had never mentioned to anyone that he actually wanted someone with my abilities, and I was contacting him out of the blue. I didn't get the deal, but I did learn a lesson from all of this. I realized that I had certain expectations on how these referral partnerships should work going forward. I tried structuring future referral deals so that the referring person had some responsibility in the deal. After all, if they were going to get paid, then I figured I should get something in return besides just an intro. On one project, I made the person who referred the deal to me the project manager. He was supposed to communicate with the customer on my behalf. This seemed great. I'd get the project, pay the same referral fee as normal, but now I'd have less work to do because the referral partner would manage the project. Win, win but it turned into a huge disaster. He wasn't exactly the project management type and didn't know a thing about what I was doing on the project. He just wasn't involved enough to know what was going on. I had to spoon feed him what to say and he blundered the message enough times that I had to jump in and take over project management. That was the last time I tried to involve a third party in my projects. After trying many less than successful referral partnerships, I finally came up with an arrangement which worked well for me and the referring partners. Here's what I would need from them. First, the referring partner would need to provide a warm introduction. What I needed was more of an endorsement than just an intro or forwarding an email. Something like, I'd like to introduce you to Eric. He does great work, and I recommend him. These kinds of endorsements were great to warm up a cold lead. Next, I set the expectation that my referral partner wouldn't have any responsibility on the project. I would take care of everything. If they insisted on being involved, then I'd tell them that we had a process which allowed them to get their referral fee without them having to do any additional work. Third, I needed to have a direct relationship with the client. Being a subcontractor to your referral partner 
so that your money and communications flow through them is just not a good situation. You want to have as close of a relationship with the end client as possible. Otherwise, you're just a commodity. By the way, if someone offers to get you work from their client, but they won't tell you who the client is or let you talk to the client, just walk away. Every time I've entered into a project like that, it is a disaster. Don't even waste your time trying to scope a project or negotiate with a third party. It's always been a total waste of my time. You must have a relationship with the client. If you cannot even talk to the client and must go through an intermediary, then the project is doomed to fail because the intermediary cannot communicate the project needs like you can. Trust me on this one. These kinds of leads always turn into nightmare scenarios. Lastly, the referral fee would be capped to a maximum amount. I started agreeing to provide 10% of the revenue of a project to the person who referred me, but I'd limit the total payments to a certain amount. The amount has varied over time, but $500 to $1,000 was about where I landed on the maximum referral fees paid for a project. Sure, someone could argue that if I got a $100,000 project, then $1,000 wasn't enough of a cut. But think about all of the work that I would have to do to get that $100,000. I'd have to turn the prospect into a client, define the project, write up the contract, do the work, manage my team, deliver the work, warranty the work, literally ensure the work, and chase down the client until they paid me. I had significant payroll and other expenses. But on their end, on the referral side, they simply had to send an email intro and they were done. Come on. I mean, fair is fair and a $1,000 referral fee is more than fair. Referrals are great and you'll always want referral work, but referral fees suck. As you're getting started though, they are worth the investment. Otherwise, you may starve because you just don't have the mechanism or brand built up enough for people to know about you and seek you out directly. So pay the referral fees, but do it on your terms. Write down your terms for giving referral fees and make sure that your referral partners know what to expect before they send work your way. Speaking of which, you will have situations where people send work your way, don't mention that they want a referral fee, but then request a referral fee after you land the work. This has happened to me on multiple occasions. Each time it has been frustrating for me because I didn't realize the person who made the referral had wanted a referral fee, and then it was sprung on me and my profits would decrease. The first time or two this happened, I played ball, gave in, and paid a retroactive referral fee. But I felt suckered and never appreciated the surprise. I also didn't appreciate my referral partner making me feel like I owed them or had wronged them by not paying a referral fee that was not even requested, never mind agreed to. Once I wrote my referral policy down, when someone attempted to retroactively hit me up, I was in a better position to defend myself. I'd tell them that I'd be happy to work with them on future projects and would send them my referral policy. That document included a statement that all referral fees must be agreed upon before the introduction to the prospect is made. I'd tell them that if I had known about their desire for a referral fee up front, then I could have priced it into the contract. But since they didn't tell me, I hadn't priced it in and it was too late. I couldn't go back to the client now and raise my price by 10%. Advertising. Knowing I needed to get my name out to more people than my network, I reached out to a saleswoman at the local business journal to talk about running print advertisements. The publication is 100% focused on business stories, business events, and the movers and shakers in the local business community. Reading that journal was ideal for me for many years and is how I began to understand where the power in the business world resides. When it came to advertising to business owners, 
the local business journal seemed like the ideal place to advertise. She recommended that I run a one-fourth page color ad in the paper every other week. In addition, they were coming out with a quarterly print magazine that she assured me would be a huge hit. I agreed to a one-year deal that would eventually cost me $10,000. After I signed up, she mentioned almost in passing that this first round of advertising was more for creating brand awareness than for lead generation. In retrospect, that statement, more like a warning, was significant. It was exciting the first time I saw my ad in the journal. I thought that I had finally made it. But as the months went on and I saw my ad more often, I realized that no one was mentioning it to me. My phone wasn't ringing more. We didn't get more website form submissions. And I couldn't trace a single prospect back to the ad. In fact, in the whole year that the ad ran, only one person mentioned the ad to me, and it was someone I already knew who couldn't afford my services. He simply stated that he saw the ad and wanted me to know. That's it. One guy mentioned he saw my ad, and it cost me 10 grand. Needless to say, I did not renew with him. Even with that terrible return on investment, I didn't give up on advertising. Next, I shifted to online advertising. Being into Twitter for a number of years, that seemed like the next place to try advertising. I ran a couple of ads that targeted people who followed relevant accounts like the Chamber of Commerce and other business organizations in my area. At about $100 a week, I was spending half of what I had spent in the paper. I got a lot of eyeballs on the ads, but they weren't doing anything to draw in work. At least, that's what I thought until one day I received the following email. I am interested in hiring your company to make me a clone of product XYZ. I currently run an educational site, but I have to use their software to host my quizzes. I am looking to run it on my own server and add some features such as PayPal integration to allow instant access. Add a feature to restrict users to only one active session at a given time, and a few other features. Can we set up a meeting? Turns out, he saw our Twitter ad several times before deciding to contact me. That one lead turned into hundreds of thousands of dollars of work spread out over three years. He was a great client, the project was interesting, and the revenue from it allowed us to staff up. That additional staff later allowed us to win other work from other clients. It turned into a snowball effect that would push us closer to the coveted $1 million per year mark. In retrospect, now that I know a whole lot more about advertising, I'm not surprised at my early results or lack of results with advertising. The paper was a lousy place for us to advertise, as is any broadcast media. The problem is that it's completely untargeted and sprays your message randomly to anyone with a pulse. Advertising online is a much better investment of your limited funds. With online advertising, you can target people ready to buy at the moment they have an intent with search ads, or by narrowing your audience down granularly with social media posts. Figure out who may be interested in your offering, where they hang out online, and then advertise there. Target them directly and craft a message so that they think you're speaking directly to them. Advertising is an investment. Set aside a small amount at first, even just $5 a day. You'll get better results over time as you learn the advertising platforms. One day, you'll likely land that huge gig like I did. Chapter takeaways. Number one, always work on growing your network. Number two, if someone invites you to a networking event, make every attempt to go. Number three, email or text new contacts the day after you meet them. Tell them it was nice to meet them. If you think they could become a client one day, 
then find a reason to reach out within a week. Number four, hosting your own events is the best way to network. It doesn't have to be expensive. Consider hosting happy hours with clients and prospects at your office. Number five, get in the routine of emailing value-packed newsletters on a regular basis. It'll remind prospects and referral partners of your offering and give you plenty of content to use for other purposes. Number six, turn newsletter content and articles you create into micro content to be shared regularly on your social media channels. Always respond to comments and engage with your followers by commenting on their posts on a regular basis. Number seven, referrals are a great source of new business. Encourage your current clients and others to recommend someone they know who would make a good client for you. Number eight, protect yourself from excessive referral fees. Document your referral policy and only pay for referrals that follow your policy. Cap the total amount you'll pay for a referral to ensure you don't keep paying long after the introduction was made. And finally, number nine, like most businesses, you'll want to advertise to find new clients. Select advertising opportunities where you can very narrowly target your ideal prospect. Avoid broadcast advertising and opt for online advertising instead. Are you a business owner looking to reach more customers and grow? Array Digital is a world-class digital marketing agency that partners with companies just like yours. We've worked with top brands throughout the country and love helping businesses generate more revenue, employ more people, and serve more customers. Reach out to find out more about our award-winning website design, SEO, advertising, and social media. You can find us online at thisisarray.com or call us at 757-333-3021.